There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Atcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing two senior colleagues, both psychiatrists and both of whom I know well and have worked with in various settings. That's Drs. Anusha Pillay and Eugene Arles. And we'll be discussing the topic of pain and understanding pain in a psychiatric context. Now, Anusha is a registered neuropsychiatrist. She's based at the Riverfield Lodge and Vitzdonald Gordon Medical Center. She's actively involved in the academic training of specialist psychiatrists, and she also plays an active role as a board member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists. Eugene is a psychiatrist in private practice. He's based at the Glenview Hospital in Benoni, and Eugene is, in fact, a past president of the South African Society of Psychiatrists. Anusha and Eugene, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join me. And just by way of introducing the topic, just a couple of observations. Specifically, when we talk about pain, we're obviously not going to be specifically talking about emotional pain. We're talking about physical pain. And when we speak about pain, we're going to be looking at chronic pain, which is generally defined as pain, which has persisted what would be regarded as normal uh, tissue healing time, which in the absence of other factors is usually about three months. And And the very specific issue for me is that it's been cited as the most common complaint to health professionals worldwide, as well as being a leading cause of disability and financial burden. But it's also been noted that up to 70% of patients with depressive and anxiety disorders experience chronic pain. So that's on the one side. But what's interesting for me is that if we take the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the DSM-5 is the fifth version, you actually struggle to find pain as a noted feature of any psychiatric condition outside of what is called somatic symptom disorder. And without wanting to get into that, that's the one condition where pain is the somatic symptom of focus, causes distress, disrupts daily life, and obviously leads to levels of, of, of dysfunction. So for all of its existence in society generally and in certain psychiatric conditions, to me it appears to be somewhat neglected within psychiatry as a discipline. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know if I'm being provocative or whether I'm hitting the spot. Inertia? So thank you, Christopher. You know, I, I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. And um, I think the part of the, the issue is that there's a lack of awareness of pain being such a crucial element to the presentation of psychiatric disorders both on the side of psychiatrists as well as other medical specialities. So let, let me just go in a little bit with fibromyalgia, for example. Mm. I think this is a, a disorder that has particularly been neglected simply because there was a, a, a lack of understanding as to the actual, uh, what we call the pathophysiology, meaning the actual causes or the understanding of the disorder. And fibromyalgia is really a chronic condition that causes pain. And because the pain has no marker, so you can't find a blood test, etc., to kind of say, well, this person has fibromyalgia, these patients have gone quite neglected. 
the net result of that would be then that they would present psychiatrists because they are now labeled a psychiatric patient. Yet the cause of something like fibromyalgia is simply an absolute abnormality in the entire pain processing system of the body. So unless we create an awareness around it with both sets of professionals, these patients have severe disability. Um, They're unable to function in daily society. And, And the worrying thing is there's a high level of then consequent substance use in an effort to try and cope with the disorder. I think you've hit on so many issues in that response. First of all, just to be clear, I mean, fibromyalgia is a collection of symptoms, really. It's, 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 it involves pain, fatigue, cognitive difficulties, sleep disturbance. And I think you, you highlighted something so critical. There's no one biological marker that makes a definitive diagnosis. So it's more a constellation. Yeah. And I think the other issue is often outside of psychiatry, when our colleagues in other disciplines are confronted with something which is not clearly diagnosable in a very concrete way, they're kind of at a loss. And so here are these patients who have chronic pain, who may in fact move into the realms of substance abuse or substance misuse to address their condition, which is not necessarily finding its way to a discipline Uh, And I'm not sure that it necessarily belongs in psychiatry, but certainly I think as psychiatry, we have the biopsychosocial ethos, which enables us to Mm. really address Mm. some of the psychological aspects, not least of which is having a condition that nobody seems to be able to make a definitive diagnosis for, which I think is really troubling to a lot of patients. And it's something that I've seen, certainly in my clinical practice. Eugene, I'm not ignoring you, but Inertia, do you want to just follow up on what I've said? Yes, certainly. You know, 2 to 5% of the population actually suffer from fibromyalgia. Uh, and, and there are two studies done in South Africa which have actually picked up a, you know, a prevalence rate that's very similar. So 3 to 3.2%, which is really high. Um, and about 6.6 6 to 9 times, um, you know, more common in female patients than in male patients. There's even a genetic link to it, you know. So this is a disorder that's actually been around for centuries, in fact, mm-hmm. and it's, it's gone around with many different names. But fibromyalgia in itself is associated often with other um, autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, like lupus, but it's actually not an autoimmune condition in itself. It's actually classified as a chronic pain condition. My concern with it is that because of the various other symptoms that it presents with, like the fatigue, the cognitive impairment, the mood disorders, the poor um, sleep, these patients are severely debilitated. Um, and they often end up, you know, being bounced around. Um, and as a result of it, they can end up with a disability if the condition is not actually managed properly. So I agree with you, you know, uh, we see it. And I think a lot of psychiatrists also don't know enough about it and feel, well, perhaps it, it belongs in the realm of um, rheumatologists and others may think it belongs in the realm of pain specialists. But actually, it's a team that requires work in order to help these patients. Well, I think that's a very important point. Eugene, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think one can't separate a pain from psychiatry or psychiatry from pain. Um, because um, 
you know, you only get three types of chronic pain. You get a nociceptive pain, which is an inflammatory pain where the, where the hormones and the, and the chemicals are being released to actually produce pain, a part of inflammation. And then you get neuropathic pain where you get nerve damage. And then the third one is functional pain. Now, that's always been a difficult issue. You know, what is functional and what not? Like fibromyalgia is functional. Uh, tension headaches is functional pain. Um, some neurologists call it dysfunctional. <laughs> but you, you, there's, always, <laughs> there's always a component, uh, an emotional component or a functional component to pain. There's always a nociceptive component and always a neuropathic component. So there's like a three-bean soup. Depending on which bean is the most prominent, that has to be addressed. But you can never ignore the fact that there is a functional or emotional component. And the interesting thing in the brain, when you look at the sensory cortex, and you go over the, the exterior part of the brain into the, the middle part of the brain, the median surface of the brain, that sensory cortex projects right into the cingulate. And the cingulate is, of course, we know the gyrus that controls a lot of our emotions. And uh, the sensation of pain is massively modulated by our emotional state. And it's in interaction with serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine especially, so, so it's got those neurotransmitters that also control mood involved. So therefore, I mean, just to imagine, you are you're watching your favorite rugby game or your favorite soccer game and your team is winning, and you've just had an operation. I mean, you hardly feel the op, you'll feel it, but it's okay, you know, you'll be able to, to watch your rugby game. Put that same person on an ice cold cement floor in a prison cell. That pain will be excruciating. So, you know, emotions can dampen pain, good emotions. And, and if you feel well, you don't necessarily feel pain. If you feel terrible and lonely and isolated, you know, you can, you'll focus on that pain. So pain is very much modulated, especially chronic pain, by our emotional state. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that there are no physical issues or brain issues. Um, you know, there's chemical issues. And in, in fibromyalgia, for instance, we know that the C fibers are called the C fibers that control pain or register pain in, the, in, in, in these patients are abnormal. And you can see it under the microscope, which always then was the argument from the neurologists and from those pain specialists that it's a neurological condition. Of course it's a neurological condition. But you can't argue that it's only a neurological condition because it's also got a massively emotional component in terms of all the symptomatology of fibromyalgia is, you know, emotional, cognitive, tiredness, all of those kinds of symptoms as well. So it's very difficult to decipher exactly what it is. And I think it's not important. In fact, I think it's important that we say it's, it's got components of everything because that's the best way to deal with it. Like the psychosocial model, a biopsychosocial model is, you know, if you take all the components to best address the patient's chronic pain. So it is important that we keep pain within the psychiatric field. Well, I think it's quite interesting because if I look at the International Association for the Study of Pain in their definition of pain, they start out by saying it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional mm. experience. So I think it's not That's just right. physical. It, it actually goes beyond that. But there's something very important that you touched on, this this issue of functional. I've encountered that in, in, in my clinical practice where patients are told that they've got a functional 
problem. And when they go and kind of look into what functional means, they kind of come back and say, what does it mean? Does it mean that it's all in my head, that this is not real? Functional almost seems to be a, a, a box that you put patients into when you cannot find an obvious physical cause as if the problem doesn't necessarily conform or doesn't conform and therefore potentially uh, how real is it. So we put it into the functional box and then off you go to see the psychiatrist or psychologist. And so certain of my patients have, have come across that term and they've really had a problem with that because it almost felt like they are not taken seriously. And they are not regarded as really suffering in terms of their experience. I'm not quite sure what your clinical experience has been. No, I agree with you. I think it's completely a misnomer. Because if you look at how pain is modulated in the brain, it, it, it is essentially pain that comes from the periphery. If you fracture a leg, for instance, and a major step, you have a major step of, step of pain, the way that that pain is modulated is clearly also, in inverted commas, functional because it gets modulated as it goes up into the spinal cord and then through the, to the sensory cortex and then to the cingulate. It's all, it's all functional in a way. So it is, it is a misnomer because you also get central neuropathic pain. And a lot of the pain, possibly like fibromyalgia, is part of a neuropathic pain syndrome in the brain, but it's a central neuropathic syndrome, not a peripheral neuropathic syndrome. And, and it's really part of um, neuropathic neuropathic pain. So yeah, the, the, the word functional is a problem. It, it, it doesn't describe the pathology quite accurately. Two thoughts come to mind. One is really about how we describe, um, if you think about the brain and the body, if you look at the dualism model, we call it the dualism model, which means you're separating the brain and the body. And what we've come to understand is that you cannot separate the brain and the body. So whatever goes on in the brain is going on in the body and vice versa. So I think where it comes in that's important for us to explain what functional means is that the presentation of pain in these patients that are called functional is a representation of what is going on in the body or in the brain rather. So it's a manifestation of the brain's distress or the anxiety or the depression, etc., which ties into our understanding and, and the comment you made earlier is that the DSM-5 lacks that appreciation and that emphasis that pain actually can be a manifestation of mental health issues. So whilst I agree with that term functional, I think that if we explain to the patients what that really means, it doesn't mean that they pretend. This is real. And it really is about a dysregulation in how the body experiences the pain so that, you know, one of the terms we call it is um, a volume control setting is actually offset. So in order for them to understand, for the body to understand that pressure is just pressure for a patient who suffers from severe pain, pressure means actual pain itself. So the volume control setting seems to be offset. So I think it's the way we, we kind of explain it to these patients with these functional disorders that will prevent them from feeling dismissed, which is what happens out there in the medical world. Yes, I think that's a real issue. And that sort of contributes to a sense of, of, of hopelessness, actually, and, and despair because their, their suffering is real. It's not uh, something which they're creating or manufacturing. So when you say 
it's in your head. Well, in yes. fact, it is, but not in the way that it means imagined. it's your yeah, it's creation. Imagined. It's yeah. exactly, it's, it's, it's not imagined. It's, it's very real. But I think what's interesting for me is the sort of emergence of pain clinics, which are run, I think, predominantly, I stand under correction by anesthetists, because uh, a lot of anesthetists are involved in, 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 in pain management. I would assume there's a multidisciplinary aspect to the pain clinics, and it would appear to me that there would, by virtue of what we've been discussing, be a, an absolute requirement for some kind of mental health professional, be it a psychologist or a psychiatrist, to be actively involved, because it does seem to me that based on our discussion now, and it's quite obvious, that pain falls very squarely within the psychiatric realm. I mean, I've been involved in pain SA and management of chronic pain for very long. Yes. Um, spoken at many of the pain conferences and attended many of the pain conferences in South Africa as well. And, you know, there is a misunderstanding by a lot of pain specialists in terms of management of pain. Uh, a lot of pain specialists do not have a clear understanding that there is a massive emotional component or a massive dysregulation component in the brain and that everything has to be treated peripherally or physically or blocking or with, with tablets or with codeine, morphine type drugs. And they haven't got an understanding what that does to the emotions and the brain. So there is a misunderstanding. So there has to be, it has to be multi-professional. It has to be uh, inclusive of psychiatry and psychology because a lot of pain management, if you read the Cochran Review, yes. one of the most successful methods of controlling chronic pain is psychotherapy and CBT particularly. Uh, it is one of, you know, one of the best articles in the Cochran Review that controls, you know, for the management of chronic pain. Regardless of anything else, even the, the, the tablets and the, the surgical methods we use, and, and you know, it's, it's not as successful as psychotherapy. So mm-hmm. that's a very interesting aspect if you read, you know, the literature, and and that is often missing. Just to clarify, CBT is cognitive behavior therapy. Sorry, Eugene, just wanted to clarify that. So carry on. Yes. Now, so there is a, a problem there. You know, so you can only manage chronic pain through interventional methods, which the anesthetists and the surgeons are quite good with. But it's not the only way. You're never going to get really successful in chronic management of pain if you don't include a psychiatric or psychological component. Because a lot of the management of pain comes from how a person has to deal with the pain and how they need to manage it. You know, if you're going to do it, if you're going to think you're going to only do it with external ways, and, you know, methods of surgery or tablets or those kinds of things, you're going to be having a problem because there's also ways of controlling pain through interventions you can do yourself or the ways you think about the pain or the way that you, you manage yourself within having pain. So that's, you know, so these components have to be joined. Otherwise, it won't be successful. So I think what's really interesting, I know Anusha, you wanted to come in, but just, just, just to say... We look at the other disciplines and we sort of say, well, you know, they don't really get it. They don't get the big picture. But my question comes from a different direction. Does psychiatry get how it should be potentially involved in this? Because let's face it, as registrars, as specialists in training, how much were we taught about pain? I don't recall any teaching, actually, about pain. And so does it not start with us as a discipline recognizing where pain fits into psychiatry and then extending that understanding into other disciplines. But it needs to come as a 
as a broad-based understanding from psychiatry as a discipline as opposed to individual psychiatrists who have a specific interest or knowledge of the role of pain in psychiatric illness. Inertia? Yeah, I have to agree with that. I think that we've come a long way in our own understanding, and particularly in neuropsychiatry, we work a lot with functional um, neurological disorders, functional disorders as such, a lot of pain conditions. And that's really broadened my understanding of pain, which quite honestly, as a, as a trainee, I never understood how important the role was until I started, uh, you know, doing my, my master's in it, which looked at pain in rheumatoid arthritis. And it's very clear from the literature that there's, there's something which we call a reciprocal reinforcing relationship. What that means you know, just in simple terms, is that the worse the depression, the worse the pain experience. The higher the pain, the worse the depressive outcome. So you cannot separate the two. But creating an understanding in the training platform is really where it starts. Sensitizing trainees to the fact that pain is real and pain needs to be respected for what it is in the patient and looking for ways in which we can manage will actually yield a much better outcome and, you know, more success in terms of the way we um, not just train, but the way we practice our speciality. So how does one introduce that? Because the truth of the matter is we deal in mood disorders, anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders. Now we've got this group of patients who might have pain that cuts across everything, actually. And so the question would be, how do we incorporate that into the training in terms of clinical exposure? Unless we start to work in clinics where one might expect to find chronic pain as part and parcel. So, for example, whether it's autoimmune conditions, um, headache clinics, cancer, you name it. There are a whole group of conditions where pain may be part of it, where in fact the mental health needs of these patients are not considered, which might be very valuable in contributing to to pain relief. So where would we put specialists in training into clinical situations that they might get this exposure and might get this greater understanding? I mean, I haven't really thought it through, but it's just occurring to me as we're speaking now. Because Inertia, you're involved in the postgraduate training, and obviously, Eugene, you can jump in. But Inertia, in the first instance, what would you say? But Chris, I, I can just tell you that it's not just a psychiatrist problem. Right. You know, in pain SA, that's one of the big problems is is that they're always arguing about is how they're going to introduce a curriculum in, in other disciplines where pain is even more prominent, like orthopedics, where people actually have to control bone pain, and neurosurgery, where people deal with backaches. There is no curriculum, and actually no good curriculum, where people are trained and taught how to manage chronic pain, even in those disciplines not even in psychiatry. So it's not just a psychiatric problem. It is in most disciplines that have to do with pain. That's the, the big problem. So what I find really interesting is that you would have thought that there would be some consideration given to how we introduce pain teaching and training into curricula for all disciplines. And maybe it needs to come in at an undergraduate level, not necessarily at a specialist level. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. I think one of the issues is that... Um, during the only time I, I think there was any understanding around pain, and I could be mistaken, was during um, physiology. That's basic sciences where none of us have got any appreciation yes. of 
the clinical implications of pain and we're simply looking at the physiological basis of pain and by the time you get into the clinical setting well your ability to integrate yeah, yeah no, you've you've forgotten that we've forgotten so i think that the thread of of management of pain understanding your pain has got to go through all the undergrad years so that when you get to the clinical years you already have an understanding that this is not um a psychological concept this is actually a physical concept and you can then relate it to the different specialities that you may rotate through and then when it comes to specialization for example in psychiatry let's take that for example because that's where we involved in certainly um you know spending some time in rheumatology rheumatology clinic spending time in the pain clinic the headache clinic uh, etc would then sensitize the trainees to the fact that these are real concepts and this is the impact they have on people's lives so it would be interesting to me to see how the other disciplines respond to psychiatry saying hey we think we need to incorporate exposure to the pain clinics eugene you had mentioned the fact that when you engage with pain essay and you look at the different disciplines it's not just psychiatry that doesn't necessarily focus on pain but certainly within the other specialist disciplines there seems to be also a, a lack of training and specific involvement with with pain management so i was thinking that maybe one takes it further back into undergraduate training so that all doctors have this kind of sensitization what would your thoughts be on that did you no absolutely i think that's one of the problems is that there is a there's a lack of understanding of pain and training and that's why it's so disjointed and and that's why people are trying whatever they can to sort it out you know from the anesthetic side or from the interventionist side they're trying to do the interventions and from the psychiatrist they try the psychotherapy bit but i think it has to be a combination if it's it, you know so it's it's vital that it starts at an, at an undergraduate level because a lot of general practitioners would also be involved with that Uh, as you know i mean pain is the most complex ache is the most common disorder in the world in terms of of the prevalence so it is critical that we understand pain also what what is a, a, a critical understanding is in the olden days before anesthesia and anesthetic surgeons used to operate on patients while they were having pain and when anesthesia was introduced in the medical field a lot of surgeons rejected anesthesia because they thought pain was a very important component of the recovery of a patient you know nowadays you get the opposite where patients should experience any pain and people would go to a massive extent to stop a person having pain and there's a, there's a middle way you know in chronic pain you often don't get rid of the pain you can alleviate the pain you can get it better but you can never stop it so there it needs to be a better understanding of how to manage pain in patients especially with chronic pain well i think this is bringing me to the issue of mitigation and how do we a- approach the individual with chronic pain i mean beyond obvious analgesia or regional blocks that the anesthetist might give i think for me it's about making sure that there are no underlying comorbid psychiatric conditions because we know that the one can contribute to the other and vice versa but it's also a question of how one deals with the reality the lived reality of of chronic pain but being able to function nonetheless and so for me this is this is a big issue and i think this is potentially where we come in certainly as psychiatry in terms of how we assist patients to cope better having potentially treated any comorbid psychiatric conditions and beyond that how we teach coping 
in general. Anusha, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, the important thing is the acknowledgement first. Yes. Um, so we acknowledge that the pain exists. We acknowledge that the pain is real. Um, and then we make sure our job is really to make sure that we treat all the underlying disorders which may exacerbate the pain experience. And then we start teaching mechanisms of coping just the way we would teach coping with depression, with anxiety. So, you know, part of this is around getting a whole team together, the psychologist, the occupational therapist, the psychiatrist, and ensuring that we each look at individual ways of doing that. So we structure time. We may um, look at um, cognitive behavior therapy, as we talked about, medication that can alleviate pain. In fact, some antidepressants are used specifically for pain and depression. For example, those that work on noradrenaline. Um, you know, we would we would steer away, if possible, from drugs that do not actually alleviate any pain. So it's a pointless exercise giving someone codeine if they actually don't respond to it. So if we start enhancing the ability to live with pain, it's like learning to live with any chronic condition. For example, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, etc. These are all chronic disorders which are lifelong. And if we if we look at pain. I think we'll get a better outcome if we start, um, you know, teaching patients ways in which they can actually live quite a good quality of life despite having this debilitating symptom. How we help patients in terms of a, a cognitive behavioral model is to change their thinking is to ask them not how bad is your pain. You get these visual analog scales or back scales mm. that ask mm. the patient from 0 to 10 how would you measure your pain? Nought be no pain and ten, you know, unbearable. But we changed that bad scale to how were you able to manage your pain today from a scale from naught to ten? Not asking about the pain, but asking about the for the patient how they managed how could they manage their pain? And then they've got to put it on a scale from naught to ten. And that changes the perception of the patient. I've got to be able to manage my pain and then tell you how well I manage the pain. And it's very interesting how patients respond to that scale because they actually then start managing their own pain. You know, for whatever means they need to, uh, thinking, um, relaxation, changing the way they think about pain, taking their pain tablets or their antidepressants or whatever they need to take. But that improves their, their, the way they, they, manage, they can manage their pain. And that's one of the methods in CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy that you can use for patients to change their thinking about the pain. Well, I think what's important there, Eugene, is that we're moving to function. So we're looking at what are you able to do versus how are you necessarily feeling. And I think that's very important because the one thing I always say to all of my patients is it's the doing that's the healing. And I think that's a very important yeah. uh, concept. So, Inertia, Eugene, I want to thank you for joining us. And I want to end today's episode just noting some key points that the International Association for the Study of Pain added to their definition, which is pain is always a personal experience and a person's report of an experience of pain should be respected. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE.